Here we go with another epic mindset episode with co-host Brian Healy. Before we get started and explain any of the guests or anything like that, this show is brought to you by Laura Lee Smith. She's a real estate agent with Better Homes and Garden Real Estate in the Bryan College Station, Texas and surrounding area. And I know you've heard my spiel before about Laura Lee, but if you don't know her personally, I can tell you without a doubt, 100%, she is the number one person in this area to find you a home, commercial property, whatever it may be, and make it pain-free and actually have you leaving happy with your purchase. She genuinely wants to see smiles on people's faces more than she wants to see paychecks. I'm not joking. If you don't believe me, give her a call or text her and you'll see what I'm talking about. Her number is 979-218-2315. That's 979-218-2315. Now, this episode is with Bryce Carlson. He rode across the Atlantic solo. He's done several ultra-endurance races, like over a dozen, I think. He even lost track of how many he's done. Um, He talks a lot about the mindset of being alone across the Atlantic and how small we feel in the water. He talks a lot about, like, I ask him about hallucinations while he's running these ultra-marathons. And we get into a lot of other things, as well as studying chimpanzees in Uganda. So, without me explaining any more... Please enjoy this episode with my co-host Brian Healy and guest Bryce Carlson. And just like that, we're going. Thanks right. for thanks for doing this, Bryce. This is awesome, oh, my man. My pleasure. My pleasure. Um, I guess we connected because Brian, Brian actually, Brian and I started this thing. We wanted to talk to like people who have done some amazing things, and um accomplish these crazy feats and kind of get their mindset and kind of share it with like everybody like as many people as we could and pick your brain and people like yourself's brain and and see what they're all about and how they did it and kind of prove that like regular everybody's just kind of a regular person and mentally they can push through and and train themselves and and kind of get to certain things if they really want to type of thing and uh he sent your contact to me when we were looking we did uh paul watkins who just did the uh, Arctic six six three three, and okay. and he won that ultra marathon or whatever. And we talked to him out of Australia, and then he sent me yours, and I was like, "Sweet, we got into this. This is awesome. This like we knew very little other than just that Instagram post. So um, basically, you sent us this email, and we're gonna go right off the bat with, I want to know how in the world you got to studying chimpanzees. Um, and that whole story, and then you can give us a background into all that. Sure. Um, you know, I think, uh, I don't know, for as long as I can remember, I've been curious. You know, I, I think of all the character attributes we might hold on high, I think curiosity is one that should be most promoted and, and supported and encouraged and rewarded uh, in our children. And I think my own curiosity was was uh, long encouraged and rewarded by my parents and my grandparents. And um, you know, I was the kind of kid in high school. I just, I loved being in school. I love I love learning every day. I love coming to school, learning new things, and being with people. And when I got to college, like I'd get halfway through each semester, and I'd be just super stoked about what like thinking about what courses I might get to take the next the next uh, semester. Um, I love college and you know as I worked my way through college you know and thinking about what I wanted to do after college I thought well what do people who love to learn who love learning new things who love experiencing new things what do they do like what what professions are out there for those kind of people and um, you know I eventually settled that I, on the idea of going to grad school that I wanted to continue to learn that I wanted to pursue a path where I could continue to learn for the rest of my life. And I figured if I could become a college professor, then, you know, that would, that would be a a profession that would allow me to do that. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I just, I got some great advice from a college counselor to always follow my passions. And if I was smart about it and found a way to apply that to a career, a job that I could make money to make ends meet, then, then I'd live a very happy and fulfilled life. And, uh, and I think that's that's really what what I did. So in college, I found you know what the classes that made me most happy, that I was most excited about, and then um, you know went on to grad school. So uh, I was a biology major in college. Uh, I went off to grad school to pursue a PhD in nutrition, 
um, nutrition and health sciences, which kind of morphed into um, a, a PhD in biological anthropology, where I studied nutrition and human evolution. And to come around to your original question about the chimpanzees, the chimpanzees were my kind of model species to study how does an organism engage with their dietary environment. And looking at the foods that the chimpanzees chose, the foods that they didn't choose, the foods they avoided, the foods they perhaps used for medicinal purposes, and to use them as a model to think about how might our last common ancestor have forged for resources in their dietary environment, and how as humans, how has our relationship with food changed over the last you know, seven, eight million years that our species has been evolving independently of the chimps? So how did you, I guess the question, like I had a question, so you're in, how long were you in Uganda for with the chimpanzees? On and off, on and off for about 10 years. So 10, um, 10 years. Yeah. So how, like, as far as like your mindset, as far as like, you're talking about like curiosity, uh, it doesn't sound like you played it safe a lot when you went, when you're making these choices, which is okay, you know, obviously that's, yeah. that's, that's, that takes some guts, but how did you make that transition as far as like, okay, this is outside the box. Like not a lot of people are going to go do this type of thing where they're going to go spend 10 years on and off in you know, a foreign country yeah. you know, and that type yeah, of thing. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it ever, I don't think I ever had the intention. I don't think I ever looked at my current position and said, I want I'm going to be doing this for 10 years. And that's like the best and most fun and smartest thing to do. It was just looking at opportunities that were available to me and evaluating which looked the most interesting, the most rewarding, the most fulfilling in the long term. And, um, you know, my first opportunity to study in Uganda came um, from a conversation I had with my advisor and some contacts he had with some researchers in Uganda. And at that time, I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to do for my, for my, um, for my PhD, for my dissertation. And um, the opportunity presented itself. And so I went out for that summer, and that summer was amazing. Um, and in the time I was there, I started to put together a project for my dissertation and start to put together over the next few years um, a trajectory for my research that might allow me to um, continue successfully in the academic in the academic world as, as a professor. And ultimately, I mean, I chose a few years ago to, to switch gears um, and kind of move out of that academic world. And, and now I, I teach high school and coach, but. Um, at the time, it was really just about exploring opportunities that were in front of me. What what made you switch to going to high school and being a coach? Is that a curiosity? Um, I mean, I think it was just it was looking at the whole like package of of my current position and career and place and um, you know I found that I, I spent four years as a as a professor at Purdue University and it, it's a wonderful institution and I have wonderful colleagues. Um, but you know, after a few years, I just I, I I found that I wasn't very happy. I wasn't I wasn't living the life that I had imagined I would be living. I was getting to do great things, you know, study the chimpanzees, and I was experiencing, uh, you know, I was doing a lot of ultra uh, ultra marathons and running and having great experiences there. But um, yeah, I don't know. I wasn't I wasn't happy. Uh, so it, it came. It came down to some some internal reflection on what kinds of things I thought would make me happy, what kinds of things weren't um, contributing to that happiness in my in my present environment, and um, and I you know I coached previously at the high school level, and uh, I loved working with kids that age. Uh, I mean, there's uh, a vibrancy and energy. There's a passion in high school kids. You know, is there trying to find their place in the world and figure out who they are and what they want to be. And they, um, they attack life with, with a vigor that, um, you know, is rare and is really exciting and inspiring. And so I came to the conclusion that I think I wanted to be around that all the time. So you talked about your, your curiosity, like you've all been curious and that's kind of what, uh, has driven, like uh, drove your academic career and stuff like that. So how I was, like what I found about how I found out about you is like it was an article about your well I'm sure we're gonna get into is your 2,000 mile trek across the Atlantic, okay? And so I, that's what kind of like drew me on in there. And then Aaron sends me the email with everything else in there, and it's just like kind of all like okay that makes sense that he do that. Now, 
did the curiosity is that what drove you to go across the Atlantic two thousand miles by yourself, like to see if you could do it, or what what was the mindset like where that made you decide like yes, I'm gonna do this? Yeah, I think to see if I could do it, to see what the experience would be like. Um, you know, I, I think it's kind of amazing that you know our planet is is more than seventy you know more than seventy percent of the surface of our planet is covered with with ocean with you know with water. And yet, very few of us get to experience what it's like to be out in the middle of that environment. Um, and, and, and um, you know, kind of without all the, the protection and the trappings of our modern civilization, you know, that that, that, that yeah. provides, allows. You know, I think for hundreds or thousands of years, our ancestors have navigated the open water, navigated the open oceans for, for fishing, for trading, for uh, migration. Uh, and this is an experience that I think is largely uh, foreign to, to, to most of us, right? I mean, if we wanted to travel across one of the oceans today, we'd do so in a plane because it's the cheapest, it's the fastest, it's, I mean, that's what we do. And so um, here was this massive part of our planet that I had very little experience with other than just reading books. Um, and it was something I wanted to experience viscerally. I wanted to feel like What's it like out there? Like, how big are the waves out there? Like, how small? <laughs> are... Yeah, I mean, yeah. How, how small would I feel in the presence of that of that power? Right? And how would I fare uh, with being alone? You know, I you know I rode the North Atlantic solo and without support, so um, I was the only person around for hundreds for hundreds of miles. Uh, how 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 would I fare in that, right? I mean, in our daily lives, we are surrounded by people. We're surrounded by friends. We're surrounded by family. We're surrounded by our work colleagues, our students. Um, we're surrounded by strangers. Uh, we're surrounded by landmarks. Um, I was really curious to what that experience would be like to have the complete absence of landmarks, the complete absence of community. Um, and in the end, you know, uh, I mean, it was certainly a really interesting experience, but a lot of those things, you know, I came to realize even in the middle of the ocean, I wasn't uh, completely alone, right? I mean, I still had technology that connected me with a community of friends and family. Um, I had, a, you know, my fiance and my good friend Alex were helping connect me with, with the Facebook community and with Instagram community and with the Twitter community. Um, and I was getting feedback from that community even while I was out there seemingly by myself. So, um, yeah, I think it was the curiosity about what that experience would be like that really drove me out there. But the realism of like and the power of the ocean is just unmatched. Just surfing the little bit that I do and just being out on the water and fishing growing up on the coast. I mean, it's nothing like what you did. That's on a smaller scale, but you realize how weak you are when just the tiniest of little waves will hit. Like, you have no power. Like, you have no control. Like, you're so tiny. What you said, being so small. I mean, you went out into, you literally made yourself the smallest. Yeah. At that moment. You know, even in the, I looked at the little boat that you had on Instagram, Instagram that you wrote in. I yeah. was, for some reason, I was picturing more of like a little old school kayak type, uh, canoe rowing thing but uh it was a cool boat but even that boat i'm going he went across that and that like did you come across any storms uh what was it like feeling that small yeah man i mean i had a lot i i had i had a number of patches of, of pretty bad weather that kept me like kind of locked into the cabin for hours if not days um about a third of the way about a third of the way across 40 percent of the way across um, I had the remnants of a hurricane come over the top of me. Wow! Holy which, smokes! Yeah, which you know, you know, at some level was, I mean, pretty scary, you know. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. but I was very fortunate, you know. And this is one of the, you know, one of the, the fortunes of living in the in the age that we do. Um, I had a weather team that was helping to provide me with with um, forecasts along the way, letting me know. Um, what I could expect in terms of wave size, what I could expect in terms of wind strength, what I could expect in terms of temperature, cloud cover, etc., currents, all that stuff. Um, they were giving me updates every few days. And so as that hurricane was approaching, you know, they were monitoring its strength. They were monitoring uh, and forecasting the conditions I was likely to experience. And so that gave me two, three days to um, put a plan 
in place to, 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 to manage those conditions. And, and I'll tell you, every time one of those adverse forecasts would come over the email, I mean, there would absolutely be a few hours of really um, uh, pointed anxiety. <laughs> because I didn't, know, I didn't know how I was going to manage it, right? I mean, a really yeah. awkward combination of currents and winds and waves, and um, especially if that was a combination I hadn't seen before, uh, it was tough. Um, but thankfully, given that, given that, um, you know, the time I had between the forecast and the time that I had to actually live out those conditions that enabled me to put a plan together, which greatly reduced the anxiety. But you're absolutely right that, you know, in the moment when you're staring down 40 mile an hour winds and 17 foot waves in a little 20 foot boat, um, <laughs> oh, my heart's better better so, right now. <laughs> yeah. So, like, you're talking about, like, something that with probably the majority of people, if they're getting ready to experience something like that, you know, they're going to they're gonna tap out and say, okay, come get me. I'm, it's a hurricane coming. But can you talk about, like, what you, like, self-talk and, like, what you went through, like, just telling yourself where you were able to, like, to push through that fear and keep going? Yeah, I'm, I think for that, I mean, I'd really credit a lot of the, the experience that I had developed running ultra marathons and running marathons and... Um, you know, playing sports in college and in high school, like all those experiences provide athletes the opportunity to experience adversity, to experience the desire to want to quit. Uh, and, and, and sports aren't unique in this regard. I, right. mean, I think they're a little, bit, a little bit special in that regard, but like in every day in our work environments, we experience, you know, adversity and challenge and when you start to become accustomed to dealing with certain challenges, that, that brings with that some confidence that you're capable of dealing with those challenges and maybe even bigger challenges. And then as time goes on, you experience maybe bigger and bigger challenges that give you more and more confidence. And I think a lot of those experiences that I had over the previous, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years um, were really, really helpful in shaping this this mindset for me that uh, I, I will get through this. Um, you know, I'm going to do everything I can in the moment until there's nothing left for me to do, and then I'll call for help. And there, there, there wasn't a single moment that I had had on the trip where I didn't think I could handle what was, what was in front of me. You know, so it was a matter of managing the moments, managing the moment I'm in, and that moment only you know, from moment right. to moment. And, you know, thankfully there never came a moment where everything was so overwhelming. I couldn't manage and I feared for my safety and needed to call for help. So how do you think you talked about, you went through a lot of experiences where you said you presented yourself with the moment, like the, the moment you're talking about with the desire to quit moments, yeah. like in, in confronting those, like how have you shaped yourself? Like the way you talk to yourself or the way you think early on compared to now, as far as like by experiencing those desires to quit, like what have you learned to tell yourself when you hit that point where some, most people would stop yeah. and you keep going? Yeah. Well, I don't know that most, I don't know that most people would stop under those circumstances, but, but I take your point. I, I think whenever we experience a very stressful or extremely stressful circumstance, I think a lot of, you know, the, the tough facade that we might, wear around yeah. on a day-to-day basis is completely removed, right? And that in that situation of extreme stress and anxiety, the facade is removed. And in that moment, you're confronted with, I think, some of the core values that define you as an individual. And I also strongly believe that in that moment, you have an opportunity to re recreate yourself. You have an opportunity to define what core values are going to define you into the future. So. If in that moment when you're stripped bare, you don't like what you see, if you're confronted with this desire to quit that, that feels very strong, um, if you don't like the idea of being a quitter, you can decide in that moment that you're not going to be a quitter. Um, and I think every moment of my of my of my row and with a lot, you know most of the past adventures that I've had, there have come moments where I was certainly not comfortable, and I had to make a decision to swallow those feelings down and continue to, to, to move, to move forward because I didn't want to be defined as a quitter. But don't you like, it seems like to me, every time somebody gets in a position like that, where they like, it's that the strongest urge to quit 
and not do this again. And then you just take that one step further. Like, nope, I'm going to keep going. It always seems like success and the ultimate success follows that feeling. Yeah. I think there's a realization when you take that one step further that it, it, it doesn't necessarily get any worse. Right? When you're yes, at that yeah. super low point yeah. where you want to quit, take one more step. It's not worse. Take a second step. It's still not worse. A third step. It's still not worse. So it's a matter of just recognizing it's not going to get any worse. Like I maybe I'm at the lowest I'm going to be right now. And then if you keep taking steps, there almost always comes a point where it actually starts getting better. Right. Yeah. Um, feeling better. You don't feel as low. You don't feel as desperate. Um, you don't feel as though you're in as much danger. Like you start to feel like you can control this. And then all of a sudden you're riding the biggest high of your life. And I think once you've gone through this process a few times, there's a recognition that it, you know, it almost always gets better if you just keep going, right? Solve your problems, figure out why you're where you are, keep moving forward and it'll get better. Yeah. Go through it instead of like, turn like, so in your situation rowing, I mean, it's different maybe on a run or some other races where you're on land, but like you're rowing across the Atlantic there. You're like, when you get to the middle, you're stuck. Like you can't go back. It's the same distance going back. You know what I mean? So yeah. What do you do? You don't have a choice. You put yourself in a position where once you start that journey, there is no real like turn around unless you call somebody to come pick you up. That I mean that's right. that's about it, right? You you've got to keep going. So, you can you put yourself in a position where you force yourself to keep pushing through that. How did the the ultra marathon stuff because I, I think that's super similar in mindset, and it just fascinates me running ultra marathons. I, I will never do one. I can say that <laughs> with confidence. Uh, yeah, but I say he, no. He's saying that, but that's not, <laughs> yeah. I know this dude. I can I can ask him like, hey, hey, dude, two months from now, yeah. let's go do it. Let's do the yeah, okay, All right. right. Uh, so I take yeah. back the never part, but I'm fascinated with the mindset of the ultra running because there's a there's a it's past all performance enhancing drugs. It's past all the science. It's past anything. This is purely willpower of your mind. Like being able to, to finish and do these, like do these long races. And so I just want to kind of get from your perspective, doing so many of them, I guess, how many have you done? Uh, like ultra endurance of that? Yeah. Uh, it's hard to define. I haven't kept a strict count. Uh, I know I've probably done, um, I don't know a lot. I mean, I, I've run probably more than I've run a hundred miles or further, uh, maybe a dozen times. Yeah, yeah and you've, you've raced uh, across, you, and you've ran across America, correct? Yeah, a few yeah. years ago, I ran from Los Angeles to Washington D.C. Um, oh. Yeah, so I've, I've had a few experiences. I've, I've been blessed to 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 kind of come up in this in this sport in this hobby in a community of, of really supportive and really impressive and really inspiring people. And just hanging out with them is just like drinking in inspiration, you know? Like in my early days, I remember in my early days in the sport of running my first ultra marathon, I remember, you know, finishing the race and then uh, sitting around the finish line. And, and unlike a typical road race where everybody just kind of heads straight for their cars and then drives home to get off to their, you know, their kids' soccer games or whatever else, like everybody's like pulling up camping chairs to the finish line, pulling up coolers of beer and, everybody's just hanging out at the finish, like cheering everybody else on that's coming in. And there's everybody's swapping stories about past races they'd run and um, in various parts of the country, various parts of the world. And like what that experience was like to run 50 miles, to run a hundred miles, to run, you know, three ultra marathons in a weekend. To, I mean, just various experiences in various places. And uh, I mean, I just found that so inspiring. And then, to hear like some of these stories of incredible athleticism from like 50 and 60 year old women who were capable of doing athletic feats at that time far beyond anything I'd ever done, anything I could ever imagine. I mean, for a 20 something year old guy who was, I don't you know, just come out of college sports, like, you know, I had this very, I don't know, macho idea of, <laughs> of what athleticism was, right? And to be completely humbled by, these 50 and 60 year old women, I mean, it was incredible. It was an incredible experience. And it really like opened my eyes that 
there's this other world of experience out there that I don't even have the faintest idea about. And again, it just sparked my curiosity, and I, and uh, you know, I've been I've been going for it ever since. Do you, how do you train for it? Like, do you do any? What's your training regimen like before you go through an ultra? Do you just run? Do you? I mean, your sleep, your how how do you conduct all that? Uh, I mean, the realist answer is it depends, right? I mean, I one of the things I love so much about ultra endurance events is that it, you know. It, it, it's a process, right? There's a process of, of getting, be, becoming inspired enough to take on a big challenge, and then a process of looking at like where you are as an athlete and where you need to be to be able to complete this this challenge, and realistically assessing that gap between where you are and where you need to be, and then putting a plan in action to build yourself up to be able to to accomplish whatever it is you want to be able to accomplish. So. I, you know, what does the training look like? What does that process look like? Well, it depends on the challenge, and it depends on, on where you currently are. So I think for me, um, you know, right now, you know, I'm looking at running. A, I've signed up. I've got a 100-mile race in late June, 100-mile trail race in late June I've signed up for, and a 200-mile trail race in early August. And, and both of those races have a lot of climb uh, and descent. Uh, and so right now in my training, um, you know, I'm, I'm following very similar principles like marathon running, marathon training, where you have like one long run a week and maybe a midweek, uh, mid distance run, but just building that out a little bit. So I'll maybe have one strong run on the weekend that goes maybe 20 miles, maybe 30 miles. And then, um, one or two, uh, middle of the week, um, runs that are maybe 15 to 20 miles uh but for all three of those runs i'm prioritizing hills because that's the nature of the challenge i have in front of me and i'm you know i don't have a lot of hill experience in my immediate past so that's a skill set i have to uh, i'm gonna have to develop to be successful in these races so i'm doing a lot of a lot of climbing on those runs that's uh so if we go i i got it's kind of like losing like i had like a mind uh, track track of thought like you're giving me a lot of different avenues i can go down here um but the one i kind of want to talk about is like this besides hitting the major hurricane in that atlantic race i think one thing we haven't touched on yet is like your boat capsized how many times uh, at least a dozen at least a dozen oh my god so like plenty of points like to want to like turn back and all that kind of thing and you're a high school teacher. So yeah. transferring these experiences to those kids, like to reach them and inspire them, like well, maybe nothing that has to do with athleticism at all, like how are you using what you've learned to push them? It's, it's tough. Yeah. Um, because because uh, in, my, in my role at the high school, um, you know, it's not like I'm an I'm not an endurance coach. Right. I'm not a persistence coach. I'm not the school psychologist. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a I'm a biology teacher, and so the extent to which my experience is entered into the classroom, I have to be very careful because I don't want the classroom to become, you know, my soapbox to talk about whatever I'm in the mood to talk about. Right. Um, I'm there to teach them biology. And right. Hopefully, inspire them to um, pursue their own curiosity about the natural world and. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know. I think my experiences get worked into the, in, worked in subtly into the curriculum. Um, cause at some level, you know, they also don't care. They've got their own lives, right? I mean, they're, <laughs> yeah. yeah. and as much passion and vigor as they're throwing into, um, developing themselves intellectually, athletically, spiritually, et cetera. Um, you know, their world is largely the three feet in front of their face, you know, um, <laughs> They're, I, I think most of my students are probably not that interested to engage with me in some, you know, philosophical conversation about what it's like to be on the trail 50 miles into a 100-mile run and, you know, the things you hallucinate and the, the self-doubt and the whatever, like, I don't know. It just it doesn't come up. A lot, do, a lot of times it doesn't come up. But do you use that mindset of like what you talked about earlier and I think in the article I read about being in the moment as far as like when they're maybe stressing about like, 
anything they're, they're, they're experiencing as yeah, far as like school? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I try to mentor my students, you know, with whatever challenge they're, they're facing, right? So in my classroom, if they're stressing about an exam or a test and that anxiety kind of presents itself to me, like if they come to me with questions and they're clearly like really uncomfortable, I try to, I try to work some of those, some of those lessons in for sure. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's what he was kind of getting at is them like transferring that mental aspect into their everyday lives. Like, do you find it easier to communicate with them how to get through a struggle? Yeah, I, I think I, I do think the, the biggest lesson I probably try to preach to my students is that there are lots of things in our life that we have zero control over. And there are lots of things that you have complete agency and control over. And I think where a lot of anxiety is inappropriately generated is is from um stressing over things we have no control over yes right if you have no control over it, then there's no point like thinking about it stressing over it. there's nothing you can change so there's nothing you can do to alter the outcome of whatever that variable is and so you know i really try to keep my students focused on um working towards the things they have agency and they have control over um, you know, as high school students, I think, unfortunately, they, they've gotten this impression that they have very little control and they have very little agency over the things happening to them in their lives, right? They feel the weight of expectations from their parents. They feel the weight of expectations from their teachers, from their advisors, um, you know, to get into a particular college or to get, you know, particular GPA. Um, and they fail to recognize that moment to moment, they have a lot of choice and a lot of agency to decide what they want to be doing in, in, in that moment. Um, and you know, they don't always make the best decisions from moment to moment about how they're going to spend that time. But you know, I, I like to help the students try to focus on what they have control over and making the most productive use of the moments they have. So this is a pretty well-known coach um, that I'm aware of that what he does with his athletes before like a big, huge competition is that he has them write out a list of everything that could go wrong. And then they go through that list together and cross off the things that are out of their control. And then that kind of like shapes what they can control. So if you like had to make that list for yourself or like just in general, like, and you're talking about like it's in life in general, like there's, there's things you can control, there's things you can't control. What would be like maybe like a top three of the things you could control that you should put the focus on? Um, I mean, I guess it's probably very specific to the job you're in, the, right. the goal you're trying to pursue. I mean, I think one of the things I cross off the list very quickly is, um, you know, responsibilities of your administrators, right? Like, um, your, your boss, your boss's boss, your colleagues, like everyone in your organization, I don't, you know, I don't care where you work. What, what job you have, like everyone plays a role within that organization, right? Yes. You play a particular, you have a particular job, you have a particular role in that institution. Um, you may have opportunities to assist other people with their, with their roles, but um, you know, I think there's a lot of anxiety that comes from people spending too much time thinking about what their boss is doing or decisions that their boss is making for, that, that affect them. Um, so for example, you know, like my, I don't know, my, my principal might tell me, you know, this week we need all the teachers to spend an hour going through this training, um, you know, in case we experience a, a, an active shooter on campus. Okay. Um, you know, some people might react to that as, uh, you know, this is, you know, this is BS. We shouldn't have to do this. Like, what a waste of our time. It's coming at a time in the semester where we're already overloaded, you know, with all this grading and all this, I don't know, letter of recommendation writing. I can't believe we have this extra hour of training we have to do. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, I kind of look at that and I say, uh, well, you know, I have, there's as much as I might complain, as much as I might be upset about this, like there's nothing my being upset or complaining is going to do to change the situation. Love it. So it's all a waste of time and a waste of energy to get upset about that. Instead, I might as well just put my head down and do it and get it over with, right? Right. But I think, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like it may be a lot of, you know, the ultra marathons, the ultra endurance events that I've experienced that have helped me to adopt this kind of 
focus on what you can control mentality. But um, I don't know. I see it pretty widely applicable. So you're talking about like controlling the way, like I think this is an awesome topic, like controlling the way you react to situations. So yeah. you're running these ultra marathons, you're doing this race across the Atlantic. Like how, like at what, like how is the self talk in the head? Like when all of a sudden the boat capsizes or you're feeling yeah. that pain struggle as you're going through that 58th mile on a, r- a rough tack. Like how, yeah. do you, how do you reshape that, that mindset as far as what you're telling yourself? Yeah, so the first thing I think I do when I start any given race, and I don't know that I do this consciously, but I think it comes naturally when you're just really focused on the goal, is to put the emotionality kind of on the shelf. Um, Like getting emotional about circumstances that are occurring throughout a race, in my experience, does not not help me get through it at all. Right. Um, So in the middle of the Atlantic, like when my boat capsizes, first thing, there's an acknowledgement, recognition that the boat was designed to right itself. Like if it flips upside down, it should flip itself back up. So I just need to patiently wait for it to flip itself back (laughs) up. And then- I don't know if I can have that patience. If if I'm experiencing conditions where I think a capsize is more likely, so, for example, if the wind is coming like right at the side of waves or crashing onto the side of the boat, making it more likely that they're going to kind of roll the boat over, um, I may be a little more mindful about tying everything down, about keeping everything secure, um, so that if the boat flips upside down and then comes right back up, there's less of a mess to clean up when it writes itself back up. So there's a bit of preparation for, for those circumstances. But when it happens, like in the moment, it's almost comical. It's like, yep, here we go again. You know, but, you know the, the situation plays out just as, you know, for the most part, as I expected it would most of the time. And, uh, and then we move on, you know. Did the you... one exception to that was, was the first time the boat capsized. Um, this was super early in the morning. It was like 5, 5.30 in the morning, and I woke up to being rolled onto the ceiling of the cabin. <laughs> I had left the air vent uh, to the cabin open. So oh, normally oh. the cabin is watertight, airtight, but there is an air vent to allow air exchange, obviously. Um, but I left that open rather than sealing it. And as the boat went upside down, water started pouring in through the air vent. And so uh, if the boat accumulates too much weight when it's upside down, like onto the roof now, onto the ceiling, oh. then it's not going to write itself back right. up. So thankfully, I got the, the air vent closed um, before too much water had come in, and then it kind of helped rock the boat back over. Um, but that was that was uh, a not-so-nice wake-up call to remember <laughs> that in those kinds of conditions, I've got to be mindful of the air vents and keeping everything tied down, and, you know, they're after things go a little more smoothly what i was about to ask you if you actually prepared in the boat for a capsize like did you cap try to capsize it have it capsized talk to people about it like how did you prepare for that moment to to come up yeah um before i left before i left on the atlantic um i had yeah i did a lot of training in the boat uh, out on a local lake um and I did purposefully flip the boat to make sure that it would flip itself back up. Um, now, I couldn't perfectly mimic the conditions that I would experience in the Atlantic because the food, the, the boat was a lot heavier on the Atlantic. I mean, the boat was probably 1,300 pounds Jeez. on the Atlantic. And when I was training on the lake, when it was empty, without all the food and other gear, it was maybe 700 pounds. Yeah. Wow. Um, but the addition of all that gear in, in the bottom of the boat actually improved the self-writing capability of the boat. So by testing it empty, I was getting a sense that, you know, uh, would this thing write itself even un- under relatively unfavorable conditions? And it performed, you know, amazingly well. Um, so I had a lot of confidence that it would that it would write itself when the, when the time came. Well, yeah, that that's kind of why I asked it because the last two uh, podcasts I've done or re- before one with a special forces guy and a firefighter, and he was they were both they both had the same thing where they said that they they do like 
thousands and thousands of repetitions of this thing so that they know when a stressful situation comes along that they can handle it. And so like just testing the boat to make sure you know it rolls over, you're surprised because you left the air vent open, but you knew the feeling of this thing flipping over. You know, you knew what that was gonna feel like, kinda, sorta, well, so you can handle it. it. There's a difference between being outside the boat and rolling it over yourself. Oh, you weren't inside right now. Okay. And being inside the cabin when a wave rolls you over. (laughs) Uh, And that that was a scenario I couldn't really plan for. I mean, I guess theoretically I could have, but it was harder, right? I would have needed somebody else out on the boat with me in the lake. Well, I'm inside the cabin, and they're outside the boat, kind of like flipping it over. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had not prepared for that, and there were, you know, dozens, if not hundreds, of scenarios that I had to um, that I had to work through on the Atlantic that I could not prepare for before I left. And I knew that before before launching that there were going to be a lot of problems I was going to have to solve in real time for the first time. Um, that's a crazy, like, that's an interesting perspective. Like there's something like you could not train for being in the middle of it. I mean, I guess you're right. There is nothing you can do for like, other than go out there and then prepare for it as you're going through. So that, right. that's well, a, And for example, like the boat had a desalinator on it. So it's a machine that oh, I read this. water from salt water. Right. Um, now to fully test that desalinator, you have to put the boat in salt water. Uh, you know, you're in Ohio. Where it actually freaking works. Uh, it, it turns out it works great. It worked great when I was on the freshwater lake, and it worked great when I was in the harbor, uh, which was like partially fed by a stream, which was fresh water. So it was, it wasn't nearly as salty as the ocean water. But I got one day out from the harbor, and the damn thing stopped working. Wow! Oh my yeah, I read that in that article. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that. Yeah, so I, you know, thankfully I had an emergency backup desalinator um, that was designed for, you know, keeping you alive on a life raft while you're waiting for help to arrive. Um, and I, and I managed to, you know, to make that work for 38 days. For 38 days, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, that is, that's crazy. Um, I kind of want to touch on how how do you keep it together so yeah. the the ultra the the ultra marathons probably helped a lot for this uh unknown thing that you brought that we're talking about but the hallucinating while you're doing it and i i this is one thing that's like it's i've always wanted to kind of know it is how how do you keep going through those hallucinations and how do you recognize the hallucinations and know like what's going on and to stay calm and how to like what goes on in your head when all those things start happening how do you push through it to the other side of that yeah i mean i will say hallucinations are not super common um in my experience uh it's been very rare that i that i've had hallucinations i mean it typically comes on if i'm if i'm trying and i and i haven't really pushed to this extent, they typically come on when one is enduring 48 plus hours of, of some event and you're going through like a second night of little or no sleep. It's in that second, in that second night of little or no sleep that people will often experience hallucinations. Now, sometimes hallucinations will happen in that first, in that first night is you're like running through the night or trying to row through the night or something. If there's some other, um, deficit, right? Like if you're, if your hydration status is poor, maybe your your energetic status is poor, um, or I don't know, maybe a variety of other circumstances. Um, for me, I, I think there was a recognition that it's not uncommon in these races to experience hallucinations. Like I knew it was a thing that might happen. And so um, the, the, the two or three times that it has happened to me, uh, it, it, there's almost a moment of excitement, like, it becomes obvious very quickly when you're hallucinating, right? Like I remember the first time I hallucinated, I was out running through the night with a group of friends and we were running, we were running some local trails and we we're coming up like a, a mountain climb. And, uh, at the top of this little climb, I could have swore I saw like a naked woman lying on a stump at the top of this climb. <laughs> um, and obviously that's not like, that's not real. 
Uh, and the closer you get to the stump, you realize there's nothing there, or it was like another log over the top of it that vaguely maybe had the shape of that. Um, and so, I mean, it's kind of fun in the moment <laughs> to see that your mind is kind of playing tricks on you. It's, it's a matter of like trying to make sense of this kind of ambiguous shape in the dark at some distance, um, and your brain just isn't doing the best job with pattern recognition at that, at that time. And so you're just like, it almost takes your mind off the actual run itself. And yeah. you're like yeah. thinking about, oh, I just saw that. I found that to be a really like valuable strategy in races. It's just to have fun with it. You know, every part of the race presents a unique challenge, unique experience. And you can kind of look forward to each stage um, as they come. Because, you know, that's a unique experience to be out there like in the middle of the woods, in the middle of the night, having run maybe the 12 or 15 hours, you know, before. We don't get to experience that too often in our lives. And it's a really unique kind of physiological position to be in, a really unique psychological position to be in. Uh, so we might as well play with it. You, I mean, like, I think a common theme, like when we talked to Paul and now even with you, is that you're able to handle some of these things because you concentrate on the task at hand and not really thinking about what's to come i mean have you always been like that or like did you end up like did it just start clicking or did you learn to be that way just over time or and when did that it transition probably, i mean i think it probably came um it almost certainly came with experience yeah um you know i think when, when we first towed the starting line for for any race um you know i remember in high school you know towing the line for my first 5k race like um, I hadn't, I hadn't learned any strategy about compartmentalizing the pieces of the race, like thinking about it, maybe one mile at a time. You, just, you told the starting line, you're thinking, I got to run for 3.1 miles. Right. And, you know, you go, you know, crushing off the starting line when <laughs> you're already like super winded and you're thinking, how the hell am I going to, you know, keep this up the rest of the way? Well, you never have to think about keeping it up for the rest of the way. You just think about keeping it up for some chunk of distance or for some chunk of time. Um, so I don't know. I think the more experience I've had in, in ultra endurance events or endurance events, period, I don't know, the, the, the better I've gotten it. Um, staying present in the moment, controlling what I, what, I, what I can and what I have to in that moment. But that doesn't necessarily mean I'm, I'm ignorant to the path ahead. Yeah. I, I think there's a recognition. I know how far I have to go, but I'm not focused on that, right? I'm not, I'm not fixated on that. I'm fixated on like, you know, the five minutes or the five miles in front of my face, you know, making it from one aid station to the next. And eventually, you know, you string those together. And before you know it, you're close enough to the finish line. You can wrap your head around the distance between you and that finish line and what you have to accomplish over those miles. So, how do you fuel yourself in one of those races? And I have seen a lot of things where, I don't know if it's lactic acid buildup, I don't know the science behind it, but they, they have trouble even keeping food down once it gets to a certain point. Like they, they're hungry and they need fuel, but they eat something and they can't keep it down. Like how do you fuel yourself properly? And I guess, did your background in nutrition and the study you do help you out with that? Um, in full disclosure, I still haven't figured the nutritional component. <laughs> awesome. In, in pretty much every long race I've done, and, and, and by long, I really just mean like 50, mile, 50 miles or longer. That's long. Um, I, I've, had, I've had digestive problems in pretty much every race I've done. Um, and I've made some tweaks here and there. I, I think I, I'm starting to kind of figure it out, but it's complicated. And it's different. it seems to be different for just about everyone. Um, you know, I have friends who can go out and run 24 hours and just drink like soda as their primary fuel source for the, for the duration of that hundred miles or for the duration of those 24 hours. Um, that doesn't work for me. (laughs) If I get, if I start drinking soda at the beginning, I'll get eight hours in and start feeling nausea. And again, it's going to start coming back up and then feel acid reflux. So, um, you know, I, I think there are some general principles of sports nutrition that, that will work for, for most everyone. But the specifics of, of how you have to tailor that, 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 I mean, that differs for just about everyone. So for me, if I'm going to engage in some event that lasts four hours or longer, I'm going to aim to try to take in about 
200 to 250 calories per hour. Um, I'm going to try um, to get to take in those calories in, in the form of easily digestible, uh, relatively processed foods. Um, so foods that are high in fat, foods that are high in fiber, foods that are high in protein uh, take longer to digest um, than foods that, that do not have those things. So, um, so I try to focus on foods that are relatively low in fat, relatively low in fiber, relatively low in protein. Um, there are lots of sports nutrition products out there, lots of brands from Hammer, Hammer Nutrition to, uh, uh, to Infinite Nutrition to Tailwind to, you know, there's a variety of, of brands out there that provide like ready to mix powders that can provide that, that kind of readily digestible nutrition. In my experience, if I'm just taking those powdered drinks, um, again, after about eight or 10 or 12 hours of that, like my stomach starts turning sour and it won't, it won't go down anymore. Um, so I have to transition to something else. And so the last couple of years, I've been trying to bring in more and more like whole foods, like uh, dates. So I'll eat dates instead of the drink, the drinks. Um, dates are a lot of sugar, good electrolytes, um, but it's a natural it's a natural food that tends to sit a little easier in my stomach for a longer period of time than the than the powders. Um, but now, at just about every endurance race you go to, uh, ultra endurance races anyway, there's a lot of whole foods available at the aid stations from oh, that's pizza, awesome. grilled cheese to chicken noodle soup to you know. So I think it's just a matter of when you come into the aid station, what sounds good. You know, and try lots of different stuff and figure out what what works for your stomach at that point in the race. If you if you're having that digestive problem and you yeah. end up throwing something up, you just do you just go or do you try to like a little bit to figure it out or do you just go? I got I got to keep moving. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, there's a recognition that the clock is always ticking, right? Yeah. In these races. Um, and, and I think there's, uh, so as I'm experienced, maybe symptoms of nausea and maybe vomiting a little bit, like I have to, I have to gauge how fast am I moving right now? And is that a product of my, and how is that speed a function of my energetic status? Like if I just keep, if I just keep going without taking any energy in, how much slower am I going to get? Like, do I have enough energy reserves right now? to like move at a relatively good pace. And if that's the case, then I'm not gonna worry about eating for a little while. I'll let my stomach settle and I'll just try to soldier on. But if it feels like I'm in a real low, like my motivation is low, my speed is low, and I think that's because I'm really low on energy, like my blood sugar is really low, then I've gotta find some way to get that food down. And often I, that involves like slowing down, slowing down the pace, that might mean stopping at an aid station for five or 10 minutes or maybe 30 minutes or an hour, depending on how bad it is, like get some food in, wait for that food to settle, uh, to clear the stomach and then get back out on the trail and start moving again. But very often I found like a lot of those stomach complications are a result of trying to move pretty fast, um, in, in conditions that are hot, um, yeah. and, uh, where you're also taking food in like those three, those three things together are really challenging for the body to do all at once. So like thermal regulate in hot conditions to move oxygen to the muscles, um, when you're going fast and to take nutrition in through the digestive system and deliver it to the muscles. It's like our bodies can't do all three things at once. So, uh, when I feel that nausea, um, you know, there's a recognition, right? Which of those variables am I really pushing? Which <laughs> of those variables can I afford to like back off on? Like if it's a really hot day, you know, can I thermal regulate better by like dumping some ice water on me or wearing like ice and a bandana around my neck to cool down? That might help with the thermal regulation part to allow my body to digest the food I'm taking in at the pace I'm running. Um, sometimes the ice isn't enough and I just got to slow down to take that food in and let it settle. Uh, so you mentioned uh, during the voting thing that you said your fiance was part of the support system. Are you guys married now? 
Like is there, is there... <laughs> no, we we, uh, we just got engaged just last January, so we weren't engaged at the time of the row. Uh, we became engaged since then. Okay, so she's well, congratulations. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> so how, how does she feel about all these races and everything that you're trying to do? Like, does it does does she do the races, or is she okay with the time spent away? She like yeah, I mean she's she's active. She she runs uh, she runs some marathons, uh, and she's very happy with it. She's been very supportive. Awesome. I think when I you know, when I talk about some ideas for the future, like big adventures for the future, I think she's she has a careful eye on like how dangerous does that sound. <laughs> um, yeah, she's very supportive. Is there is there a is there a limit? Is there like a line in the sand she's drawn? Like, nope, can't do that we one. Haven't found, we haven't found it yet. Okay. Uh, but, <laughs> who know? I may I may have a line that's a little closer than she does. I don't know. Um. <clears throat> so. I like the support system thing and that she's like, she's on board with it. And you talked about how enjoyable it was to come across after this long run and everybody's pulling up chairs and that that almost draws you to do more races. So, and several people, it's been the same thing, support system, support system, whether it be military people and they're used to that little brotherhood, firefighters, cops, Whatever it is, like when your activity, when you have that community, it draws you to it more. And it's not the actual activity so much as it is the bonding with these other humans, going through a struggle and getting through it to the other side. Do you you find like, do you find that to be the case where this pushes you to do even more and becomes more addicting because you love the people that surround you and uplift you? Yeah, I I think... um... I, I would completely agree with that uh, in, in a couple different ways. Um, you know, the first I think is, you know, when you sit around with a group of uh, endurance athletes, hearing their stories about feats they've accomplished, well, it's not just about accomplishment, experiences they've had, yeah. you know, races they've gone to in really exotic places and the really incredible things they've seen while they were engaged in those races. Um, you know, that inspires, like, I think, each of us to go out and create stories of our own that we can share that inspire others, right? Like, I've, I've enjoyed so much inspiration from the people I've, I've run with over the years. Um, I'm incredibly happy and excited to offer some of that back, you know, by sharing some of the stories of the things I've seen and experienced. So that's certainly an, an element of community that I think is really powerful. But the other part of that that I think is also really powerful is, you know, in, in, in so many of these races, uh, you know, I'm out there on the trail or on the road um, for hours, right? And often you're not alone, or right? I haven't been alone for hours. You know, this row was an exception to that, but there have been a lot of races where I'm out and you just kind of settle into a pace and you end up running side by side with someone for maybe two hours, maybe 10 hours, maybe the whole race. And it's amazing in this world of endurance sports how quickly you get to know someone while you're going through some of those hardships together. Like, you know, we're out maintaining a pace for the most part that's slow enough that we can carry on a conversation. And you get to know someone really well over the course of a race. And, you know, you exchange contact information. And this is one of the blessings of social media you know, you can, you can get connected on Facebook or Instagram and you can stay in touch and, you know, then you meet up at some other races down the road. And, you know, I have, I have, you know, dozens of friends around the country who I've met at various races. And every time uh, I end up at at another race, I'm bound at this point, almost, I'm almost, it's almost inevitable that I'll see someone I know at some, at some big race around the country. And it's like a little bit of a reunion, which is, which is really awesome. Is there anybody like we I know we talk we reached out a lot of times to people to inspire other people like it almost seems like we kind of gravitate towards these um, athletic endeavors athletic feats people have accomplished is there's any is there anybody in your life that you would say that has inspired you that had nothing to do with athletics at all um, yeah I mean I, I'm a firm believer that everyone we meet knows something we don't everyone we meet in life has something to teach us that we don't, that we don't know. Um, you know, and I think I take, I take that inspiration in from, I try to take that inspiration in from everyone around me, you know, from, from my fiance to my siblings, to my students. Um, 
yeah, I mean, everybody has a unique story to tell. I'm a little reluctant. You know, I remember um, as an elementary school student, you know, having to fill out those worksheets of like, what's your favorite color? What's your favorite song? Who's your role model? Right. Yeah. I never felt comfortable with that who's your role model uh, question because I never felt there was one person whose life I wanted to emulate, right? Um, I think there, like, there are lots of attributes of lots of different people that I um, that I find inspiration in, right? But that doesn't mean I want to become them, right? right? I love that one thing about them. I'd like to, you know, I see someone who exudes, you know, um, an incredible amount of patience. And that reminds me that I value that character trait and I'd like to become more patient myself. That doesn't mean I want to be that person, but I, I love their patience, right. right? Or, you know, or their compassion or their humility, you know, all those things. See, I, I guess I'm, I, I've learned like how I can kind of draw that from people is like, I'm a talker in the sense of, I like to ask a lot of questions, probably to a fault almost sometimes. Like, how do you think that you draw that like this inspiration where you learn about other people's lives, like how do you kind of dig into that with these people you meet? Um, I don't know that I, yeah, I don't know that I do is, 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 um, I don't know that I'm really as active about that as it sounds like you, you might be. Um, <laughs> I think it's a matter of putting myself into environments and, and being willing to listen. Love it. Um, you know, and that's something, you know, that, and that's a character trait that I, you know, that I see in others that I really admire, those who are good listeners. And that's a trait um, that I don't know that I'm all that, that, I, that, I'm all that strong in, <laughs> my ability to sit back and listen rather than talk, because um, I'm a talker myself. But, um, you know, that's something I'm working on, too. I think everybody can get better at listening. That's right. like one of those things, like, we can all improve, because once we get, like, connected with somebody the majority of people, even introverts, they're going to talk and talk. You know, that's how, that's what life's about. It's, it's fun to swap, like you said, swap stories, share things, joke around. It makes us feel good to like, to, it's almost like, like you said, running down the trail. It's like a therapy session. You know, you're, you're talking to this person and all of a sudden you're being vulnerable and it feels good to be vulnerable with somebody else. No matter who that is, it, it could be a friend. It could be, a, your spouse, it could be any anything in life. Like that vulnerability and being open and honest seems like it brings the most joy to us. For sure. And I'd, and I'd add to that that, you know, you have that moment of vulnerability with someone maybe on the trail. You know, they get you thinking about something, talking about something, and then you may part ways for several miles and several hours. And then, you know, even though you're by yourself, you're thinking through what you guys were just talking about, right? Yeah. And they got you thinking about something, um, and that becomes therapy in itself too. Yeah. And that therapy session may may transcend that particular event, that particular run, that race. You know, you may be thinking about that thing for weeks. I just thought about how beautiful that is right there. You know, so you get you get to hear like what they're saying, and you get to listen to them and be vulnerable and hear their stories and share yours. But then you get time to actually process it and really like let it sink in and think about it and understand what I mean that's that's the ultimate listening right there it's it's kind of a man that's very very interesting on this ultra like running so far like being able to listen and then being able to process it at the same time that's pretty yeah, cool it's a, it's a it's a it's a truly beautiful um, sport or activity that we find <laughs> these ultra endurance races and I know a significant portion of the population may think it's crazy it's outside you know their their experience um, they can't wrap their head around it they can't wrap their head around why anyone would want to do that but yeah it's beautiful moments that I think bring a lot of people who have experienced it at least once keeps bringing them back is there anything else on the agenda coming up that hasn't like maybe is not a long endurance race or anything, but that is going to seem pretty extreme to other people. Uh, marriage. <laughs> <laughs> we're both, yeah, we're both married. We understand. Yeah. It's all right. No worries. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's uh, one piece of advice I give you. It was the best decision I ever made. Oh, 100% yeah. for me too. Yeah, like out of all my decisions in my entire yeah. life, that's the best Good one. Yep, yeah. yeah. I, we, I, I know... I definitely married 
the perfect person for me. Don't regret it a day. I, I I struggle when we're separated. Like, oh man, I don't know. Now what do I do? Like, <laughs> she's gone. <laughs> so it, it's awesome, man. I like that journey yeah. a lot, and especially as supportive as she is now. I mean, that that just sounds like it's going to be a, a a good match. Yeah, I got. I'm I'm very very lucky. That's for sure. Awesome. That's awesome, man. Well. Is there anything you want to plug before we end it uh, in the podcast? Um, you have any sites, blogs, stuff like that that you want to? Put out say, um, sure. I mean, I'd encourage any of your any of your listeners, any of your watchers, uh, any of your followers, uh, if you're interested in what I'm up to at the moment. If you're interested in what I'm what I might be up to in the near future, you can find me on Facebook. Just at Bryce Carlson. I have an athlete page. You can follow me there. Um, I'm on Instagram at Bryce Rose. Um, I'll post any, any updates on what I'm up to there. So happy to have anyone along for the journey. All right. So before we like totally finish, I want like share any advice you can give somebody that is thinking about starting into this. Maybe they want to do ultra marathons. Maybe they want to do whatever it is, but what's your, like the starting point, how do you get there? And what would be the biggest advice you would give somebody that's about to go on an epic adventure type of thing? I say, just do it. Yeah, just like sign up for it, like get yourself committed and then find a way to make it happen. You know, like you you may not have the the perfect preparation. It may not be the perfect time. But I think if we wait for the perfect time and, uh, you know, we end up never doing it. Um, So I would say, you know, maybe find a buddy, find a race that excites you. Just sign up for it. And then, you know, the the internet is an amazing thing. You know, there are (laughs) a million plans out there that will get you ready for whatever race, whatever adventure it is you want to have. So I'd say, you know, stop waiting for the right time and just go for it and you'll find a way to make it work. I love it, man. I love it. it. Well, thanks, Bryce. This is a lot of fun, man. Oh, thanks for having me on, guys. This has been great. Absolutely.